So let every man abide in the same calling in which he was called. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm trying something different today. I have noticed increasingly over the last few months that my eyesight is having trouble finding the distance with my papers. And I was thinking about it this week that I need to maybe try this. So Dave and Robin set me up with this, and we'll see how this goes. Because I'm not getting bifocals till I'm 50. <laughs> Two years. <laughs> okay. So. Six months more. <laughs> Six months more. <laughs> Actually, now I'm going to have to figure out where to stand. <laughs> A few weeks ago when we started Chapter 7, I suggested that we are going to see this theme from St. Paul, Stay as you are. Let every man abide in the same calling which he has called. And here it is in plain view. St. Paul has a very immediate sense of eschatology. <clears throat> he firmly believes that the Christ event, the cross, heralded in the beginning of the kingdom of God. And while he knows that kingdom has not yet fully come, he holds tightly to the reality that everything has now changed because of that cross. And because of that, he can confidently and sincerely urge all of us to live in the hope of that kingdom. Circumstances for Paul can and must be put into their proper eternal perspective. A perspective that is based on the fact that at the cross, Christ destroyed evil and death. And so we can hope that no matter how bad things get here on this earth, it is not the end of the story. We can live in the vision that darkness, chaos, suffering, and hate will, will eventually have to give way to light, order, peace. See, what Paul is doing here in these verses that we read this morning, 17 through 24, is he is dismantling their theology with his theology. They brought him all these questions on sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> questions that were all designed, remember, we've looked at this for the last couple of weeks, to support their underlying agenda. And what their agenda was was based on some bogus theology that we should all become spiritual ascetics. We should be doing away with all the things of this world and live completely in the heavenly kingdom. Because remember, we've talked about this for 30 weeks now. For the Corinthians, some of these spiritual people were so hyper-spiritual, they thought they were almost angels now. They were already living in the new kingdom. So, they were pushing for no sex. And Paul says, no. They were pushing for the end of marriage between believers. And Paul said, no. They were pushing for the end of marriages between a believer and non-believer. And Paul says, no. And here, in verses 17 through 24, which we're covering this morning, he explains why, and he draws on his theology, and in the process, dismantles theirs. All right. This is actually a spectacular piece of writing. This is a little composition within this greater homily that makes up chapter 7. In the original, it's almost poetic. Look, consider the composition of it. Okay, so he starts off 
with his theme, remain in your calling. Then he uses an illustration to talk about that circumcision. That's the Jewish-Gentile question. Then he remain in your calling again, which ends that first brilliant piece of writing, but it also starts the next brilliant piece of writing, where he then uses another illustration, the slave-free question, and then he ends with remain in your calling. This is a beautiful little piece of poetry that Paul has inserted here as he's arguing with the Corinthians. And the content, as we're going to see in a moment, I think, is spectacular. Though I must admit, and it probably happened to some of you, you're reading through chapter 7 the first time, and you get to these verses and you probably scratch your head thinking, okay, Paul was talking about sex and divorce and marriage and widows, and now he's talking about circumcision and slavery. The guy makes no sense. He's all over the place. I don't think that's what's going on at all. Interestingly, some scholars think that. Some scholars think this is like a redaction that was added years and years later. I don't believe that at all. I think this is very purposeful by Paul, and it makes perfect sense at this point to bring this in and have his argument. You see, this is not new territory for Paul. Okay? This, this Greek-Gentile question, slave-free question. To the Galatians, he wrote this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I think Paul's probably putting together this brilliant piece of composition to the Corinthians, going through his notes, and he might come across maybe this. And he says, oh, that's perfect. I'm going to bring those two things in here. Remember, what has he just been doing? He just spent all his time talking about men and women, male, men, women, men, women, men, women, and he goes, nope, you know what? I've used this before. I think the argument fits perfectly here, and he uses it to complete his theological argument against all these issues that the Corinthians are having. See, one, one quick note. There's this very cool verse that I love in the Bible that helps me when I'm trying to deal with the complexities of Paul. To Timothy, he said this. When you come, bring the, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. I love this verse. It's one of these innocuous verses in the middle of the Bible that you probably never even made note of. The reason I love this is because, you know, a lot of us first come across the Bible as little kids and in Sunday school. And we get introduced to this idea of inspiration, right? And inspiration, which we've talked about here, this massive idea, this massive concept. What really does divine inspiration mean? Well, when you're a little kid, you think through things, right? You have to come up with some sort of pictures. You have to come up with some idea. And inspiration is so tough on little kids that I think even as adults we get stuck back in that image we created of just sort of, this book was sort of just like people went into trances and it just was written. I, I, I don't believe that. Paul was a scholar. He was a brilliant, genius scholar. And the composition of what we call scripture, at least what was the Pauline library within our scripture, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from Paul or what God can do with people, but I don't think Paul just sat down and sent off these letters. I mean, we've been looking at this now for 30 weeks. These are brilliant compositions. Poetry at times, essays at times. It's just incredible stuff. And so I think, to myself, Paul's writing this. He's going through his notes. He's like, how can I argue for them? How can they see what I'm trying to get at? Oh, I know. We're going to use the Jew-Gentile question. We're going to use the slave-free question. It's a perfect place to go. And in fact, when you read this chapter closely, as we've been trying to, what have we seen? We've seen that he's dealing with a desire 
on the part of these Corinthians aesthetics to change their circumstances. That's what's going on. They're sexual beings, they want to be non-sexual beings. They're married, they want to be unmarried. They're engaged, they want to be unengaged. And this is what these Corinthian ascetics are pushing in Corinth for believers. And they're using this twisted theology that it's because we should have nothing to do with the world anymore. We should all be spiritual ascetics. And Paul says, no. That has nothing to do with the Christianity I introduced you to. Nothing to do with that. Fee, Fee is excellent here. He can help us. The call to Christ has created such a change in one's essential relationship that one does not need to seek change in other relationships. These latter are transformed and given new meaning by the former. Thus, no one is better off in one condition than another. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And that's what Paul has been doing right along. Now, we've been looking at this for a couple weeks. If you're married, he says, don't stop having sex. I mean, yeah, don't, don't stop having sex. If you're married, don't get divorced. If you're divorced, don't get remarried. That's what Paul's getting at with these Corinthians. They want to change their circumstances. Now, last week we looked at what Paul had to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Paul covers the don't have sex thing back at the beginning of chapter 7, which we did not cover. That's verses 2 through 9. And I don't think we're going to cover that. If you want to, let me know, and we can do a complete study on Paul getting through that. However, I want to say this briefly this morning about those verses. So just a quick sidestep here, and we'll come back to 17 through 24. When you read verses 2 through 9 in this chapter... they probably do not mean what they seem to mean at first. Take some time with it. All right? Remember, in my introduction to chapter 7, I said, I believe we're going to find Paul was not patriarchal, and Paul had a very complex understanding of marriage. He was not crude and all that. All right, I want to take one minute to help with that process of seeing this. All right, consider what he did say. He said this, sorry, he said this in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You can sort of read that quickly out of context, not understanding Paul, and think, geez, he's a bit, yeah. Okay? So let me give you three biblical scholars commenting on this verse. Brilliant men, just so you can see what I mean when I say Paul was not patriarchal, and he was not crude. Okay? First, we'll start with Witherington. Paul's egalitarian treatment of the rights of each partner is remarkable and would have amounted to a serious qualification of the status quo. Few Romans could have conceived of arguing that the husband's body belonged to the wife. In this chapter, though I understand it has been grossly abused over the years by men, what Paul really does in this chapter to understand it is he takes women and he elevates them to a level that to that point in world history, it would be hard to find someone else that had ever elevated women this high. It is unbelievable. There is no one, like Witherington says, few Romans, and I think he's being generous, who would have said, oh yeah, my body as a man belongs to my wife. No, thank you. He was talking in a time and place where... It just didn't happen that way. And Paul said, 
no, you guys have totally missed the deal on women. Let me help you understand what God thinks about women and raises them up. And remember, see, part of our problem with, with chapter 7 and why we want to make chapter 7 this rule book on divorce and marriage, and it's not, is because what Paul was dealing with with marriage then is totally different than what marriage is today. You can't underestimate that. Marriage in Corinth did not look like marriage today. It wasn't, marriage wasn't done for romantic reasons. It wasn't about a nuclear family. Marriage was done for social status. Marriage was done for economic reasons. Marriage was done to procreate. And often it wasn't even done legally. It was just people got married. Same with divorce. Divorce in our day, very complex process. Not then. It was more just a man saying, get your things and leave. We're done. You see? And Paul comes in and all of a sudden is saying, hands women all this power and all this authority. Earth shadow. Okay? Another one. Let's see what another one says about verse 4. This is speed. Paul puts sexual relations within marriage on much higher ground than one finds in most cultures, including the church, where sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and wife's obligation. Oh, I bet some of us have heard that before. For Paul, the marriage bed is both unitive and an affirmation that the two belong to one another in total mutuality. This is earth-shattering stuff that Paul is writing in the first century. It's incredible. And finally, Bailey, our Middle Eastern scholar, we, we, we quote a lot. Equality between the wife and the husband in Christian marriage is here presented in unforgettable terms. Each partner in a marriage has authority over the body of the other. No sexual games are possible in this kind of marriage. There can be no power plays such as give me what I want and I will sleep with you. No form of abuse is even thinkable. Each partner can say to the other, I give gifts and I have rights and I have authority over your body. The granting of these gifts, rights, powers to each partner is truly amazing to discover in a first century document. Paul's affirmation of equality between male and female in regards to the intimacy of marriage is nothing less than amazing. And I, I know sometimes I get a little too passionate, but guys, oh, it, you know, chapter 7, remember we started a few weeks ago, you read it, you go, oh my gosh. It's not, oh my gosh, it's spectacular. And, and, I'm, and I'm sorry if when it has been used to diminish women and diminish sex, and diminish marriage, and diminish celibacy. And when it's used for all of that, I'm sorry. It's not. It's a beautiful, spectacular piece of writing. And what he does for women and human sexuality is, I, I think it's even unmatched often now. Now I read modern writers speaking to our complex culture of marriage and divorce and remarriage, and they are not as beautiful and as understanding as Paul was. I suggest to you, any reading of Paul that he is a patriarchal bore is a complete misreading. Think about this. We've all, we've all read Acts. What does it say? Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. As a result, many of them believed and did also a number of prominent Greek women. There is a reason the smart, intelligent, prominent women were falling in love with Paul and his teachings. There's a reason. Okay? If he was the patriarchal bore that he often gets made out to, I don't think he would have had this fall. In fact, at least one of the churches was started by all women. If you read Acts closely, you can find that. Okay, so, 
thanks for that side note, but I just get really excited about Paul and what he's writing and how beautiful this stuff is. So Paul has been encouraging right along, stay as you are, stay as you are, we've been looking at that for a couple weeks, and now he brilliantly justifies his arguments with his theology in 17 through 24. He begins by explaining that our circumstances did not influence God's initial call in our life, so why should they be of such importance now? We were all called while we were in unique circumstances. So why the big push for all believers to now have the same circumstances? See, this is what the Corinthian aesthetics were arguing for. They were teaching that all believers should be celibate, should be unmarried, should be etc., etc. And Paul says, well, that doesn't even make sense. If Paul calls us, I mean, excuse me, if God called us all while we were in these different circumstances, why do we all of a sudden have to get rid of them? This is the argument that Paul's making. If God can call us while we're in those circumstances, surely God can use us while we're in the same circumstance. Right? So, a couple things to note here. Our calling is to be redeemed. Our calling is to be in Christ and to live as such. To live out the imitation of Christ. That's our calling. Now, some people will teach these verses that our calling is our circumstances. I, I don't believe that at all. And I don't believe Paul was teaching that. Our circumstances are our circumstances. I think what Paul is getting at is our circumstances are rendered irrelevant exactly because of God's call in our life. See, think of it this way. If God looked at our circumstances and called us into a love relationship with Him, into the imitation of Christ with Him in that circumstance, then why does that circumstance need to change? Do you see what I mean? This is big. I know this is big. And this is difficult. I understand that. And we're going to get there in a second. But I think that's what Paul's getting at. And see, this leads to number two. Paul is not necessarily advocating for circumstance. And that's important. This can be read and, and people will say, see, Paul's an advocate of slavery. He's an idiot. Paul's this. No, he's not advocating anything for circumstance. What Paul is advocating for is how we live in our circumstances. That's what he's advocating for. Next week, we're going to pick up the slavery illustration. I'll, I'll explain that. Today, we're going to do the Jew-Gentile thing. But Paul's not advocating for any circumstance. Married, divorced, single, unmarried. He's not advocating for circumstance. He is advocating for how we live in the circumstance we are in. That's what he's advocating for. And it's big, and it's powerful, and I understand that. Fee can help say it maybe better than I can. Precisely because the circumstances are irrelevant, if change does take place, that too is irrelevant. 
What one is not to do is to seek change as though it had religious significance, which it does not. That's what Paul was dealing with. People that were claiming, oh, because we're Christians, we have to do this and this and this. And Paul says, no, actually, that's really not it. You have to live out Christ-likeness regardless of your circumstances. That's what Paul's getting. Then he uses his first illustration to prove his point. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Which I always laugh at that. That's such a classic. (laughs) I would love to see that surgery happen. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now, joking aside, if you don't read those two sentences and say, wow, and I know you laugh at me and make fun of me for saying wow, but if these don't make you say wow, I'm going to gently suggest you're not paying attention. Or perhaps you've been desensitized by way too many years of Bible study. Okay? So, let's use our Middle Eastern scholar to help us explain why this should drop you to your knees with a big wow. Paul really wrote that? It is utterly astounding to read these words from a first century Jewish scholar. Oh, there's a second time he's been utterly astounding in the first century, Paul. The sign of the covenant was cir- the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Here, that commandment of God is set aside. Paul is talking about the calling of God and telling the entire church there is no special cultural identity required for discipleship in the kingdom of God. Let me just read that again. There is no special cultural identity required for discipleship in the kingdom of God. The Jew does not have to become a pig-eating Gentile. The Gentile does not have to be circumcised and join the Jewish Christian branch of the church. There is no sacred culture and no sacred language. I want to read that again. There is no sacred culture and no sacred language. Paul is writing in Greek and not in Hebrew, even though he is. He tells his readers that regardless of their ethnic origins, there is a calling from the Lord tailored to who they are that does not require becoming someone else. What? And how many times have we, in the name of Jesus Christ, disobeyed Paul on that? How many times? How many times are we still doing that? Where we are looking at cultural things and saying, Oh, you can't be that to be a Christian. You know, I lived in India and I saw the wreckage of centuries of this abuse. Where beautiful, beautiful culture and ethnicity was destroyed. In the name of Jesus Christ. Even Bailey, here's how he ends the quote, he gets it. From Constantine onward, the times and places where this vision of Paul has not been honored are legion. If, if we have been doing that, thank God for his grace. Let's not do it anymore. Let's not do it anymore. It's a big deal. This is why I say wow when we read these 
verses. Paul, Paul, circumcision is nothing? Are you kidding? It's big. So Fee helps us understand what Paul is getting at and why Paul is using this in this particular argument in chapter 7. Being Jew or Gentile simply means nothing to God. That's a big one. Whatever one was when called is what one still is with no need to change. Christ has made such distinctions obsolete. Allow change here and the cross is effectually negated. Because such a change for religious reasons attaches significance to status as such. This, in effect, destroys God's grace as God's way of salvation. See, what, is, what do we talk about all the time with Paul? It always comes back to the gospel. And anything that would change the gospel from a gospel of pure grace, in which God saves us, we do nothing, is for Paul, bad gospel. Paul knows it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with what God did, not what we did. And as soon as you give significance to what we are, you change that story, right? Okay, so why here? Why in this argument with all of these Corinthian aesthetics on sex and divorce and remarriage? B, I think, is perfect here. Paul's point, of course, is that they themselves should transfer the principle to their desire to be demarried. Marriage is nothing, and celibacy is nothing. These things belong to the category of the irrelevant. That's why Paul throws this argument in here. They are using a religious Christian argument to end marriage. And Paul is like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. <coughs> but then what people will do, but then people will say, well, look, right here, Paul said this, and now we'll make hard and fast rules for 2012. That's a bad idea, too. Because now you elevate a circumstance again. Do you see? And Paul wasn't elevating any of their circumstances. And I know it's easy to read and say, yeah, but he says right here it's better to be single. Well, that's just because, hello, ask anybody that's been married 20 years. It's easy to be single. That's all. It's not some, oh my gosh, religious significant thing. It's not the circumstances. We, I know, and it's beautiful, and I'm not diminishing it. I've been married. I'm on my 19th year. I'm not diminishing the beauty of how we view marriage. I'm just trying to point out that our understanding and view of marriage is one moment in time and history and culture that has not been shared exhaustively, generally, for however long this world has been around. And it always scares me a little bit when I hear people taking our ideal of marriage and suddenly making it the ideal of marriage. It might not be. And I'm not diminishing marriage. It's beautiful. And if you're married, do everything you can to stay married. If you're not, don't sweat. Don't sweat. There is a bigger relationship. And that's our relationship with God. Because the only thing that lasts forever is that relationship.
This is not easy stuff Paul is talking about, I understand. Because at the end of the day, what Paul's really trying to get at, the opening quote today, I don't know how many people read it or remember. Paul is trying to help us out of our prison of self-preservation in which life becomes about our joy and our happiness and our wants and our desires and instead becomes about the other. And so our circumstances sort of become secondary to the gospel and to living out the gospel in our lives. See, what matters for Paul is this. Keeping the commandments of God. Now, before you get carried away with this, this for Paul is the imitation of Christ. Okay? Be careful with this. This is certainly not an understanding of law that we see in the Old Testament. And some of us see in the New Testament. That's not what this is. Think about it. He just said the very the same sentence, the first half of the same sentence, circumcision is nothing. Well, guess what? Circumcision was the law. Right? So he's not going to say circumcision is nothing, and then, but the law is everything. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember Paul's understanding of the law. It's not a, a code of ethics. It's designed to show us we need this. We need salvation. Right? For Paul, keeping the commandments of God is now imitation of Christ. It's following Jesus Christ. The greatest commandment. Love God, love others. Okay? Barrett. Barrett comments. I think very nicely, that we keep God's commandments means in obedience to the will of God as disclosed in Jesus Christ. And that is a far more radical obedience than the observance of any code, whether ceremonial or moral, could be. I think that's very helpful. Remember this. For Paul, loving God and loving others was not obedience to earn salvation. It was the only proper response to salvation. Right? We've talked about this since we started chapter 7, which is, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, perhaps we should live like Jesus Christ. Right? That's what Corinthians is about. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, perhaps we should live like Jesus Christ. And for Paul, that means no matter what our circumstances are. So, as challenging as it is, because we've all got circumstances. Right? We've got circumstances. I, Emily's sister has a circumstance right now. Jonathan, cystic fibrosis, that's a circumstance. His brother Ben, cystic fibrosis, those are circumstances. And we've all got them. We can go right around this room and we can talk about our circumstances. We've all got them. Paul's not being flippant. He's not... Oh, it doesn't matter. That's not what this is. This is not put on a happy face, everything's fine. Bobby Farron, don't worry about that. This is a guy 
who has a profound awareness of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is not limited by ours. You know, I sometimes think about my own witness in my own Christianity as I, as I sometimes can become very critical of Christianity in the West. Because so much of it seems to be focused on how we live as far as morals go. There's all this fighting that goes on. Someone was telling me a story the other night, and I just my head spun when I was thinking about, wow, if that's all Christianity is, what Paul is getting at, I think, is the heart of Christianity. You know, we want to change the world. Oh, we get on Facebook and we rant against this and we rant against that. Oh, the sanctity of marriage is going away. And oh my God. And on and on and on and on and on. And we want to do all these things. And yet when it comes to the big picture, the circumstances, we're exactly the same. We fret. And we woe. And it's the end of the world. And I'm the same. I'm not talking about any of you. I'm the same. Ask my kids. I'm complaining all the time about my problem. So what's the point? What's the point? Because really, if this is all there is, what's the point? I know this is going to sound horrible for a pastor to talk about, but totally sucked into The Walking Dead. <laughs> I know, you can excommunicate me after, but let me get this out. <laughs> and for those of you who watch it, if you're into season two yet, they're in this little church in the country. And hell has descended on the world. Hell. Everything is gone. Nothing makes sense. And at one point, there's two separate scenes where two characters spend time on their knees in front of Christ on the cross. And I was watching that this week, and, and I know it sounds sappy, but I was bawling because I was thinking to myself, sometimes I have trouble with the bigger picture. And my world's pretty good. And there were two people in a scenario that if it happened, I think most of us would give up our faith. But they were holding on. They were holding on to some profound level. If you're listening, Lord, just give me a sign. What Paul's getting at and you know, through the year centuries, the end of the world has happened for many different people groups. Many different people groups. You can't tell the Jews the world didn't end during World War II. For that matter, you couldn't tell a bunch of 10 million Roman peasants that either. I mean, Russian peasants. But what Paul is getting at is something that we can take into every circumstance, no matter how dire and bleak. Because this isn't the end of the story. It's not. 
as wonderful as marriage might be, it's not the end of the story. As incredible as having children are, it's not the end of the story. As horrible as this world can be, it's not the end of the story. So as challenging as it is, I, I, I think Paul's right at the depth of Christianity. And this is not something he just talked about. He lived this out. Read the Acts of the Apostles. <coughs> he was poor at times, beaten at times, hated, slandered, abused, tortured, imprisoned. We believe this stuff. To the Philippians, he wrote this. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, he's in prison. This might be, I think, tradition has it, this is his last imprisonment. It ended in his death. Have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains. I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. I, that's Christianity. It's got to be. Because the only thing that's different. The guy is in prison. And he's good with it because other people are coming to live into the same hope that this isn't the end. A little later in this, he explains why he's able to do this. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, both all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There it is. There's the reality of the Christian faith. And that's how Paul lived it up. And that's how he's able to say to us, Hey, your circumstances really aren't as important as you think. He understands our pain and our suffering and our tears and our anger. But he knows there's a bigger hope. <coughs> there's a bigger hope. Now here's the thing. Right now, much of our suffering is not unto death. Some of it is. But I guarantee you this. All of us are going to suffer unto death one day. Might be sooner than later. But it is going to happen to all of us. All of us are going to lose friends, family, and our own lives. It's the way of humanity. The wonder of amazing grace, though, is that even when our circumstances are that horrible, even then, we can hope in the same God Paul hoped in. In the same good news Paul went to prison and died for. The vision that God loves us. And nothing at all will ever change that. And because of that, even death is for us nothing but gain. Let's live into that vision. 
not into our circumstances. Amen.